American Toffee Podcast, your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club, hosted by Alex Johnson and James Boyman. Welcome back, everybody, to the American Toffee Podcast. We have a very special episode with Paul the Esk today. But before we get into that, Joined, of course, by Alex, as usual. Salutations. And we have Ryan here. Gentlemen. And we have a bit of news, which will probably come as a shock to basically nobody, but we wanted to make it official on the pod. So, but a couple months ago, uh, we had a conversation with Ryan and we asked him to join as a permanent third chair of the American Toffee podcast. And he graciously accepted uh, I'm sure you guys have noticed that he has been a fixture on the show for the last couple months. So that has been the reason it hasn't, he hasn't actually been a recurring guest. We duped all of you. He has actually been acting as a sleeper cell agent as our third chair this entire time. But we're really excited to have Ryan on the show. Obviously he's extremely knowledgeable, watches more soccer than I think there is enough time in the day to watch and, you know, provides a lot of really good opinions. So we, Debatably good opinions, I guess, is a better way to put I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> but we're, we're really excited to bring him on, and, and we're, we've been working really hard on the back end for some really exciting stuff that we have in the works that we don't want to reveal quite yet, but we will reveal that in due course. But this is the official announcement. Uh, Ryan's now a part of the show. Really excited to have him on. Yeah, I mean, if you followed the show long term, you know that Ryan's been on the show many times Ryan, we're really excited to have you. I mean, we enjoy creating podcasts with you from a personal perspective. I love the takes that you bring to the show. We constantly got shouts from people all on Twitter over the last however many months, year plus. Ryan should be a permanent. Yeah, obviously, we've talked about this a lot behind the scenes, but yeah, I'm, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity. I know it's a lot to live up to. You guys have done an amazing job kind of building this up to what it is. A lot of people don't realize, I know we kind of joke around a lot and have some fun on here, and that's the intent behind it. You know, it's supposed to be a big kind of community and supposed to be fun, but Alex and James make it very easily. Hamas, pardon me. I mean, they're they're incredibly well-prepared, very professional. We do put a lot into each episode. I I hope the listeners appreciate that, and I will certainly continue to do that. It's kind of funny. I almost feel obligated to do it even more so than maybe I should be. But but yeah, I promise to to give my best effort and um, continue to work to bring as much content and insight as I can, hopefully in a good way that fosters dialogue rather than. But yeah, I mean, I guess that makes us now, whether it's Cream or Rush, like a true power trio, right? The American Toffee Podcast is now a power trio. And and. Power trios always work, right? I mean, has ever a power trio ever really, really failed? I mean, I don't know one that has, no. Amen to that. So without further ado, I mean, this is good timing because this episode with Paul, the Esk, one of the more notorious figures in the online Everton uh, sphere, I guess you could call it. This was kind of Ryan's, he, he kind of drove the development of this episode. He created a lot of the questions for it, and it was truly a, a fascinating conversation with a guy who is blue to his core. 
It's a great conversation. We hope you enjoy. And without further ado, here's Paul Biesk. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. We are very pleased to be welcoming on none other than Paul, otherwise known as The Esk. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the American Toffee Podcast. Gents, uh, I'm absolutely delighted to do so. It's been um, an ambition of mine for a long time to talk to uh, American Toffees. So, um, yeah, delighted to do so. Yeah, very glad to have you on. It's uh, been a long time listener to your shows and uh, excited to to dive into some of the questions we have. I think our listenership and, and the fan base as a whole are probably very curious to to learn a little <laughs> bit more about you and and perhaps some of your backstory. So, so with that in mind, let's let's get into the first question. Can you talk a little bit about growing up and and how you came to become an Evertonian in the first place? Yeah, of course. Um, born and bred in Liverpool. In the early, early 1960s. So when Liverpool as a city was probably at its peak, uh, both in terms of, uh, commerce. At the time, Liverpool was the third largest port in the world by tonnage. So, um, you know, a massive port in that sense. Obviously the Beatles and sort of culture was uh, very prevalent at that time. And, um, we had two fantastic football clubs, uh, both Everton and Liverpool. In the early, early mid sixties until in fact the late, late sixties with Everton, um, we're going through one of those periods of, um, enormous success. So Liverpool is a, as a city and many of you listening to this may, or some of you listening to this may have been to the city will recognize it as a place that is football mad. I'm, I'm an Evertonian for one simple reason. And that's because of my grandfather. My grandfather was the biggest single influence on, on my life as a child. And he was an Evertonian, an absolutely mad Evertonian. He didn't miss a home game from 1927 till the weekend that he died in 1975. Um, that's awesome. So that was the culture in those days. You know, that, that was what happened. So he, he was a docker. He worked on, he worked on the docks on, on the River Mersey and he and his friends used to finish work at 12 o'clock on a Saturday lunchtime. They used to get the, they worked on the, on the Wirral, which is the other side of the river from, from Liverpool. They used to get the ferry across and they used to go to a pub in the city centre. And then they would go to whichever game was at home. Everton played at home one weekend, Liverpool played at home the following weekend. And the, the same bunch of guys went into the match together, whether they were Evertonians or Liverpoolians. And they went and watched both, both sides. But my grandfather was an Evertonian and a, such a mad Evertonian, uh, because his father, uh, actually played for Everton, played in the first, actually played in the first game at Goodison. So our family history or our association with the club goes back to 1892. So that's, you know, that's quite a, that's quite a good reason, I think, to be, to be an Evertonian. Yeah. The other point about it's better than ours. <laughs> I think it actually makes you guys better Evertonians than it does me because I really never had a choice. And, you know, like my children don't have a choice or never had a choice neither. So, you know, the first day that they were brought back from the hospital, they were put underneath an Everton quilt, even though I haven't lived in Liverpool nice. for you know over, over 30 years. But the other thing about my, my grandfather was, although he had, he, he was a labourer, you know, he had a manual job. He left school 
at sort of 13 stroke 14 um, at, the, at the time, at the beginning of the First World War. He was, uh, how can I put it, he was very frustrated uh, because he didn't have uh, any academic qualifications, but he wanted to pursue a sort of an academic uh, academic activities. And so the way that he, he did that was he uh, used to buy two football programs at every game he went, one which he used to keep in pristine condition, the other one he used to write the notes of the game uh, alongside the in in the margins of the football program, and when he got home, he would um, translate those notes into a series of ledgers. So, one of, probably my prized possession is his ledgers, and there must be must be 30, at least thirty of them, which are all handwritten notes of every single game that he went to. So when you <laughs> when you come so, from that, so like today. He would be a podcaster, basically. Today, or at least he would be he, he out would, there talking be, about the club. Endlessly, all over I'm this. sure. He, oh, yeah, he he would probably spend a lot of time being banned from Twitter because uh, he, t- <laughs> 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 he just had, there was no off switch with him. I guess, and I guess, given the times and given the occupation that he had, you couldn't afford to have an off switch. What he would make of modern football, who knows? Because. You know, I I despair about modern football, many aspects of modern football, and I know that may sound strange uh, to an American audience. Somebody who spends an inordinate amount of his free time talking about football. I mean, I look, I I often say to people, I don't normally say it on uh, online or on a podcast or anything. Um, I love I love Everton, but I don't like football. So, Paul, I, I totally understand the concept of kind of being a fan almost of, of a team, you know, out of connection to, to the city or a locale or your family. And that the idea of, you know, being frustrated with the overall kind of league or even the schema, um, is that, is that maybe part of the reason why you almost feel compelled to talk about the business side of things or, or the footballing from, because it's become more of a, more of a business oriented, type construct is that is that a little bit of the inspiration for everton business matters is that kind of how it started it is really and it's interesting i think um i think a number of evertonians will probably feel like i do in terms of loving the club but not loving the modern game and part of that is because we haven't enjoyed the benefits of the modern game yeah i I suspect if we you know if we had been much more successful in the last 25 years we wouldn't be that bothered about the state of the modern game it's the fact that we haven't enjoyed anything from that and everton business matters really came about from that if you go back to about sort of 2014 2015 there was a lot of talk in the uk media about how how could everton move from where they were to where they needed to get to and it sort yeah. of focused on the fact that the then owners, Bill Kenwright, John Woods, um, Robert Earl, neither had the capital nor had the intent of finding the capital that the business desperately required. So I started talking before, long before Everton Business Matters started, I started talking on uh, local media and national media just as a fan of phoning in. And, you know, people were saying, or, you know, a BBC presenter might say, you know, what what is the problem at Everton? Everybody thinks Bill Kenwright is, you know, a super chairman. And I would phone up and say, well, he's not a super chairman because he hasn't got the resources himself and he's blocking other people from putting the resources into the club that would make us competitive. So 
it started from then, sort of a little ball got rolling. And then some people, many people may have heard of the Blue Room. The Blue Room came out of Radio City, which is the local radio station in, in, yep. in Liverpool. Um, and a guy called David Downey, who I'm sure you know. He yes, said, we do. Yeah, he said to me, why, why don't you come and have a chat and talk and talk about business? And it just coincided with the time that Fahad Nashiri bought 49.9% of Everson Football Club in February 2016. So I did a few shows with Dave Downey um, and a couple of other people in, in the Blue Room just talking about Everton's finances. And then I, I got introduced to John Blaine. John Blaine is chairman of the Everton Everton Football Club Shareholders Association, which is the oldest association of its type in the world. So you know it's quite an interesting uh, little part of Everton's history, and even even today, with Fahad Mashiri owning seventy seven percent and Bill Kenwright owning five percent, it still represents most of the remaining sort of seventeen eighteen percent of the club that's held by smaller shareholders. Anyway, I was introduced to John, and John and I chatted over a few things. We got another person that we knew from social media, a guy called uh, Roger Armstrong. And we, oh, we, yeah, we know yeah, Roger. Yeah. and I go back and forth a lot in case you haven't noticed. I mean, Roger, Roger's a great – Roger is one of, the, one of the most passionate Evertonians you'll ever meet. Yeah. And we just said, look, you know, let's, let's give this um, a go. We've all got professional backgrounds. We were, uh, me more – me running businesses more than the other two, but uh, John had a, has a long career as a senior executive in some very large businesses. And, and Roger mm-hmm. worked in the city of London and has been you know, an entrepreneur himself and runs his own uh, consultancy business. So we, we felt that we were suitably qualified to talk about the business of Everton Football Club. Um, so we said, like, you know, let's try it. And you know, if we get half a dozen episodes out of it, well, that that's all well and good. And, you know, we'll have enjoyed it and maybe people will latch on to, to our thinking. And we did that and it sort of just, it just grew, grew exponentially in terms of numbers. You know, I'm sure you guys know that when you first start a podcast, you know, you look at the numbers and if you go from a hundred to 200, that's fantastic. And then it's sort of, you know, it snowballs from there. And that, that was the case with Everton Business Matters. We just, we talked to begin with, we had no real agenda, no real idea, uh, of, I wouldn't say of what we wanted to say, but no sort of, there was no plan in terms of, you know, if we're going to do a series, this is how it's going to be planned out. Um, but we realized that there was a lot of interest in the business of Everton. Some of that came from the fact that Fahad Mashiri had just turned up and nobody knew who he was and nobody knew what he sure. was going to do um, with Everton right. Football Club. Do um, they know now? <laughs> Sometimes, and, and you know, if, if if our job was to t- tell them what was going to happen, well, we failed spectacularly. Um, <laughs> you know, I I fail every week on Twitter because I tell everybody that we've got no money and that we can't possibly buy players. <laughs> and I, I think I'm pretty sure Fahad Mashiri looks at my tweets and says, "Right, I'm going to go and buy a player." <laughs> just, just, but see, but I, I think I think you talk about. I mean, that's one of the things I always say is, you know, obviously I have a little bit of a business background myself and. I find Everton Business Matters in particular, I mean, you do other stuff too, objective and very, very matter of fact. I mean, I, I think just, it gets a strong reaction, but my take on it always is you are speaking from kind of an angle that's, that's advocating sound, responsible business practices. But you know, I mean, you've been in the States too. I mean, for, for a while, 
owners don't necessarily act like that, but I, I don't think you, you say definitively like Farhad's not going to do that. I, I think you've always leave it open, at least somewhat to say, but you know, Hey, look, if Farhad kind of wants to throw more money at the problem, uh, and I think, I think people, I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel like sometimes people confuse when you speak to regulation and kind of what the limits are. And, and then there's another level, there's sound business practices. And then there's Farhad pushing up to the edge of regulations. Why do you think people confuse that a little bit? I feel like people take it very personally. Like you personally are saying, don't spend this money Farhad. And I don't think that's the case at all. Oh, gosh, how long, how long have we got? How many hours do you want me to speak about this? Because there's, well, I think people want to know that. I mean, this is, I, this is part of. Part of it. I mean, people react very strongly to it. And half the time I'm like, he's not saying that. He's just speaking from, you know, his perspective. Well, there's, I think there's so many reasons why people react by the way that they do. I think a lot, I think a lot of people react to people that are different to begin with. Um, and I'm not your tip. I'm, I'm not your typical, at least online. I'm not your typical Everton fan. I think I'd say that. That's true. Uh, first of all, um, I sometimes say things that people don't want to hear. And yeah. I think, and I'm sure it's the case in, in, in the US that you, that there are whole segments of the fan base that, you know, Everton are as important to them as any other aspect of their life, be it their families, be it their jobs, be it their health, or all of the things that are important to all of us. Everton are right in, is right in there amongst, amongst that. And because of our history, because of our, the expectations that's placed upon the club, um, and then because we've you know consistently disappointed as a club for many <laughs> many years, the last thing that they want to hear is from somebody who is slightly different, telling them that actually the thing that they most want to happen is not going to happen for all of these logical mm. reasons. Because as you say, football <laughs> football is not a logical business. To you know, it, it, <laughs> right. It's run, it's run by people who obviously have great logic elsewhere because otherwise they wouldn't be in the positions that they're in. But when it comes to actually running the game of, of football, a lot of that logic goes out of the window for some, for some reason. And I'm not, I, I'm still not exactly sure, uh, what that reason is, but you know, there are countless examples of people with very sound businesses, brilliant business minds who, when they become owners of football clubs, just do the most irrational, strange thing. So whether Fahad Mashiri is one of those people or not, I, I, I frankly, I don't know. What I do know is that the, the initial sort of three, four year, well, the initial three years of, of Fahad Mashiri's reign at Everton was one of him committing vast sums of money, vast sums of money in, in Everton's terms anyway, uh, 350 million pounds, but not putting any, any of the processes or any of the, Things that you yeah. normally put in a business, if you're putting a, you know, what is effectively a massive capital um, investment, he didn't do that. He didn't change the management team, which I think was is his and still is his biggest mistake. To think that the people who had put the club in the position that they were in, or the people that had run the club on a shoestring, were the right people then to suddenly um, spend an awful lot of money, seems bizarre to me. But clearly, Fahad thought that they had the ability to do that. My own opinion is that they didn't. And my own opinion is that the, that the people that are still there that were there still don't have those abilities and shouldn't be at the club. But all of this 
saying all of these things, whilst it may be correct in many ways, doesn't necessarily make you very popular. And I suppose, and I shouldn't say too much about this because I don't really want to give the secret away, the fact that I don't <laughs> react very much to what people say I think annoys a lot of people as well. So. <laughs> well, I, I, I know, but you almost feel reluctant sometimes to speak about it. I almost feel like it's more of an obligation for you. And I, I think if people understood that, maybe they wouldn't just <laughs> rake you over the coals every single time they feel like they've well, that, found a contradiction I, to whatever you said or something. I don't, I, I, there's nothing I say that I say deliberately to wind people up because, you know, I'm not, I, I can, I've got plenty of other things to do in my life. If I, <laughs> Yeah. Other than wind up Evertonians on on Twitter, <laughs> James and I what, can relate to that. What it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what what I say and and the reasons why I do what I do in terms of having the esque Twitter account, having my own blog, having you know three very different um, podcasts is I just feel the need to express my opinions about the club, and I enjoy bringing in other people who have got. Sometimes they've got different opinions. Sometimes they've got the same opinion. But I try and find people that have got uh, knowledge of the business of football. And, you know, in the case of Everton Business Matters, there were three people that did have that knowledge. And so, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's really interesting. We, I suppose you could call it, although it's not intended to be, it is very, actually very divisive because people either love it or they hate it. And there's no, there's no middle ground. Nobody has a sort of, you know, sort of opinion about EBM. They either think it's one of the best podcasts they've ever heard or they wouldn't go, you know, they perhaps they listen to it, but they don't like it. It's just, it, it is, it is quite strange. Or maybe they don't understand a little bit too. Well, you know, one yeah, of, I think that's a big part of it. One, one of the things that we tried to set out, um, was to be educational and, and mm. not, not in a condescending sense of, you know, we're, we're we're educated and we've done this and we've done that in our in, in our our lives and our careers um but genuinely trying to get people uh who possibly didn't have any business experience who possibly never looked at a set of accounts couldn't tell you what amortization is uh, to save their lives to try and get people to um to understand why all these things are important and particularly why they're important to everson and the, they're important to Everton because we're we're trying to play this massive catch-up game with people that have benefited from you know twenty twenty-five years of Premier League football and have built a big balance sheet, have got massive revenues compared to us, and we're 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 trying to do the impossible. Really, we're trying to compete with these guys, even though we don't have the resources to do so. And you know, a lot of people say, well. We do have the resources because Fahad Mishiri has put in £350 million or sometimes they say actually Usmanov has put in £350 million or whatever. Or if he hasn't yet, he will do in the future. That's that's not the way that football is run. Football is not run like like almost like any other business where if you spend all the money that you've got, as long as the shareholders have got more money, you can stay in business. Football is a for an American audience that may not possibly understand this, the football is a regulated business, and it, and the regulation is all around the relationship between income and and expenditure, so the profit and loss account. Um, so it doesn't matter right. how wealthy your shareholder is, if 
you end up spending more money than you earn in terms of income, then eventually the regulators, the Premier League or uh, UEFA in terms of European football will catch up with you. And so that business model is totally uns- unsustainable. You can, you can get away with it maybe three, four, five years at ma- maximum, but eventually they'll catch up with you because if you keep spending more than you earn, you, you, you become non, non-compliant. And then, and, th- and then where, where are you? You know, that's why it's very important. I, I believe it's very important that Evertonian understand as much as they possibly can about the business of football and about the, how finance relates to Everton's progress and not only Everton's progress, but the manner in which we progress. Um, so it, it's a, it's a, it's a form of holding Fahad Mashiri and the executive to account because albeit I'm, you know, a minor shareholder in Everton, I don't really have any say as a shareholder. I can go to the shareholders meeting once a year, like several hundred other Evertonians will do, but we don't really get the, the opportunity to question at those meetings. And the club doesn't normally engage with smaller shareholders. So this is the opportunity not only for me to ask for some accountability, but hopefully to get a, you know, a, a wider body of Evertonians to ask the same question. And I suppose ultimately, John Blaine may say something slightly different, but from my perspective, that's what Everton business matters. And, and that's what the S website is all about. It's looking for a better football club uh, and looking for accountability from those people who own it and, and who are in charge of it. And, and I think that's important. I think there's, there's a lot of fans that, as you said, may not have the, the in-depth understanding of finances, may view Farhad Moshiri's acquisition of the club as, you know, a, excuse my, my, term here, but like a sugar daddy where he can just come in and, and throw money around and, and make all the problems go away. And, and when you talk about how far behind Everton have fallen in the Premier League era, I don't think that can really be understated. It's, it's so, so important. And there, there seems to be certain segments of the fan base that are just dismissive or would prefer not to acknowledge the, the inconvenient truth of, of financial fair play and profit and loss, as you mentioned. You know, you can talk about, I mean, and when you look at, you know, down the road in Manchester, what Manchester City were able to do, they'll cite that and say, why, why can't we follow in, in the same footsteps? Or they'll say, well, uh, Alisher Uzmanov can just sponsor the stadium for 24 billion pounds and we'll have all the money. You know, Farad Mashiri is an accountant. Why can't he just make all the problems go away? I have the, the feeling that I think American fans are, are more accepting of the, the nature of financial restrictions and, Maybe that's because of all of our sporting leagues are, I think, baseball do have these restrictions in place for, for teams for the sake of parity. Do you think that's true or there's something about that, that maybe U.S. fans are missing in regards to the, the financial side of things? No, I, I, I think, I think that's true in, in, in the widest possible sense of it. I, I suppose for, certainly for Eng- English fans, the thought is that Financial fair play, if we just use that as a broad term, was brought in to sort of pull pull the drawbridge up. So if if you were already a successful football club, it stopped other clubs from becoming you know, from becoming competitors with you. 
because it stopped clubs from investing large sums of capital in, in, into their business. I actually, right. I actually don't subscribe to that view. I subscribe to the view that without financial fair play, uh, the Manchester City is the, the PSGs of this world, um, would be even further ahead of, uh, Everton. If Manchester City didn't have constraints upon their business in terms of how they use capital, because ultimately they're mm-hmm. supposed to generate income to meet their expenditure. If they didn't have that, they would have invested, the, their owners would have invested so much more money than they already have. And the gap, I, I think that the gap between the clubs that have been successful and the clubs that have extraordinarily wealthy owners, state, you know, state backed clubs and other clubs would be even bigger today without financial fair play. Um, than it, than it already is. So the, the league would be even less competitive than it is. So, Paul, a lot of people I don't think quite understand. They think we're spending the summer because financial fair play and P&L kind of been relaxed. Uh, that's not really the case. It was for last fiscal year. Yet here we are. We've spent money on three midfielders. Depend- I'm not sure how much money on James right now. Um, I mean, I think they represent value. Again, I think you'll hear my typical spiel is, you know, I, you know, the difference between investing in value and growth. I'm, I'm more of, I think everything needs to be in growth, but fine, whatever. Yet you, you kind of indicated in the past that Everton will not spend a lot in this window. And I think maybe people are a little confused what spend means. I, I don't think you ever had any indication that we're going to spend any money at all. Uh, I mean, I, I got the impression there are ways to do it, but you know, it's almost from a net standpoint or whether it's sales revenue, decrease in wages. I mean, did I get that right? I mean, I feel like people are kind of mischaracterizing the context in which you're saying those things. Um, well, thank, thank, thank you for saying that. I, I, I firmly believe that they, um, they haven't quite caught what I was saying. Maybe that's my fault for not explaining it properly, but essentially, um, my, my belief, and it's been my belief for a couple of years is that the, the only way is that the only ways that Everton Football Club could uh, spend money spend money in terms of either transfer fees or in terms of increasing wages by bringing uh, players in. Some players maybe on loan, some players maybe on on freeze. Could only be achieved by one of three three different ways. Um, it could be achieved by increasing debt. It could be achieved by uh, shareholder contributions, i.e., Mashiri putting more money in. And, and those two things could be one or the same thing, or or it can be uh, achieved by increasing income. And when you look at increasing income for Everton, much of Everton's income is actually fixed; it can't can't actually go any higher yeah. than it is. Um, yeah. But the one area that it can go higher is in terms of player trading. Yeah, absolutely. So you right. know, we've got a, lo- a lot of assets that sit on the books. Problem with those assets are that. You know, they haven't played an awful lot of football in the, in the Premier League. A lot of them have been lent out to other clubs and they've not achieved a great deal at other clubs. So the market <laughs> value is probably not great. But the, the biggest problem Everton have with those players, with people, and I sometimes, I think wrongly actually refer, uh, refer to as Deadwood. I think, I don't think that's a very nice term, but anyway. The biggest problem that we it's have accurate in a lot of cases. I mean, I, I, there's yeah. nothing wrong with saying that. Um, the biggest problem that we have in in moving those players on is that most of those players are on contracts that will be a career high earning. They will never ever in their careers earn the same amount of money that they're currently earning at Everton. No and, question. 
you know, hand on heart, I, I don't blame any, I don't blame any individual who takes the view that I have a short career. This may be my last major contract. Um, I'm not going anywhere unless I either get the same amount of money or I get more money. There will be a few individuals that will be motivated by playing football more often for the, for, for the host club, maybe even winning things with the, with the host club that they might not get at Everton. But you know, realistically, a lot of people are sitting at Everton on contracts that they won't get elsewhere, and therefore they have no incentive to move at all. Now, the club yeah. can sort of finesse that in, in, in certain ways by contributing towards uh, you know, their salaries if they, if they move on elsewhere. But we're not really in a position to do that because we're already losing money and we're already cash negative. So, um, you know, it's, it's just math. a difficult one for us, for us as well. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, I mean, it's mad, right? I mean, so, so unless you're going to make a good loan where I, the one I will say is I, I would say some of the older players in particular are difficult. Uh, Sandra Ramirez is one that we sent on loan and, and Valdelith actually used him properly. Yep. And I know a lot of people just say goals. He didn't score goals. Well, he's not a, he's not a number nine. He never has been. He's always been a second striker, kind of a left wing. And his contributions overall to Valdelith in the minutes he played were very good, actually. You know, his, his, um, he set up a lot of people. He made things happen. And, and granted, no one's going to pay 40 million pounds for him. I think we know that. But in that case, he maybe reestablished some of his value. But then you take a step back and you say, okay, he's got one year left at say, I think it's 90. You know, 90 K a week. You're right. No one's going to pay him that. No, however, however, you know, he's of age. You can kind of play it out and say, okay, well, if someone comes in, maybe they'll offer a couple, couple million pounds for him and, and say, Hey, look, I'll sign you up for three or four years. Cause you're, you're young. And, you know, maybe I'll only give you 50 K, but over time, you know, just mathematically, that's four times 50, 200 K. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Yeah. And, and they're going to want to leave eventually, but that's not the case for some of these guys that are older and and they're looking for their last payday. They're much more difficult to move. I, I think he's going to move the guys, but how can you argue? We got 17 million, I think left, I think um, in annual wages sitting on the book for people in the last year of the contract, he did move Morgan Schneider. So, I mean, th there was that um, not for a big fee, but that that's what happens, right? I mean, if you don't invest, invest properly, the wages kill you. I mean, you can't move, move guys on the, the Schneiderlin. Uh, sale was an interesting one because on the face of it, it looks like we've lost shed loads of money selling him for a couple of million when we bought him officially yeah. 22. But you've got to look at it in the context of one of the major objectives for Everton Football Club must be to reduce their costs in order to make yeah. the PL look better. By sure. getting Schneiderlin off, off the books, um, we may have had a small uh, player trading loss, and the player trading loss is the, the value of. Uh, the transfer minus his, his book value. Book and that's probably, yeah. you know, sort of maybe, maybe three million or so. But the benefit to the PL was that we lose, uh, the rest of his amortization and we lose the rest of his wages. So the net effect is actually positive to the club, even though we've sold him at a loss. And um, that's only possible though when amortization is a, is a big factor. So Balassi would be an example where we could sell him. Uh, below book value, but actually be in a better position by the end of the year because amortization is a big factor for him. Sigurdsson definitely is in, is, is in that position. Yeah. Um, Sandro Ramirez isn't because amortization is not really an issue with him. The issue is, is his wages. So 
Yeah, right. low fee. It, it right. wasn't a big book. Right, right, you know, right. wasn't a big book value to begin with. Yeah. So the players with the big book value and the big amortization cost. And amortization yeah. is the is the cost in one year of the contract over 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 the period of his contract. It, it is possible to do something with the, with those players as long as we can get them to somewhere where you know there's some parity in terms of their current earnings. But the the problem is and. Uh, Hannes Rodriguez is, is 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 an example of this. It is a buyer's market. It's even a buyer's market for Everton going to Real Madrid. No question. You know, um, I, I I have it under on very good authority that actually we've paid nothing for him. That's the opportunity now. I mean, if we were in a better financial position, we could have taken even more advantage of this. I, well, I think that yeah. is an overall undercurrent of your whole theme, right? I mean, that's Absolutely. a lot of what you're trying to tell people. And you know, Chelsea are taking advantage of their of of their position, their position is slightly false in the sense that there was, there was a transfer ban, so they couldn't spend money. But they've also got a lot a lot of player profits uh, booked, ready to be spent. So so that's why they, that's why they've gone big in this market because they can buy assets at prices much lower than they would normally be able to do so, and they can still comply with any regulations that may apply in the future, assuming that those regulations are in play. If they're not in play, they'll, well, even better. They don't. They they have even less of an issue. The the the, the frustration for me as a, as an Evertonian and for somebody who analyzes Everton as a business is all the poor business decisions that we've made over the last four or five years, four and a half years, makes it so much diff- more difficult for us to take advantage of these circumstances. Here we have yeah, a, no a, a, an owner who's absolutely willing to put money into the club. But can't put money into the club because of the position, right. because of the decisions that he's made previously, or can't put as much in as he might want to because of the decisions that he's made previously. Yeah, the clubs dug themselves a hole. There's, there's no question about that. And I think, I think, and I don't think this is a large faction of the fan base, but a certain faction, even this summer during the first few weeks of the window, started to, to maybe question. Marcel Brands' capabilities as a director of football. And, you know, there, there, there may be an argument to be made there, but it's impossible to look past the situation that we were in when he arrived and how, how mismanaged our, our player acquisitions were. And, and he's, I think to this day, obviously, as you've both talked about, to this day, he's still trying to, to dig himself out of that hole to put us on back on a, on the path that I think he's capable of, of, delivering on maybe his overall objective. But um, just to pivot the conversation, we did briefly touch on Hamas Rodriguez and, and the transfer fee, Paul, according to you, is is zero, which we've seen that come out and, and people were uh, almost in disbelief. Are you encouraged at all by how the club handled that transfer? I think there's there's been a huge, obviously, the marketing efforts, the billboard in Times Square, all of those things. It, it's resulted in a really... I guess warm fuzzy feeling amongst large large portions of the fan base. Do you think that there's potential, or do you have any ideas for things that Everton can do to take advantage of of how popular he is? We've talked about it on the show. One of the top ten most followed athletes on social media in the entire world. Um, and do you think that that the club are capable of capitalizing on a player of, of his stature in the global game? I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure the cl- the club want 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 to take advantage. Of now having acquired him, I think the issue is when you when you outsource everything, which Everton do. So Everton outsource, you know, all of their retail activities. They outsource, obviously, the, the kit, and they outsource an awful lot of um, 
acquiring sponsorships to third parties, it's sometimes difficult to get those, to get the outsourced partners to do the things that perhaps you would have done if you, if you were in a position to do it yourself. So my biggest concern is will, will fanatics with all of their various interests be able to sort of, you know, flick a switch and, and they, you know, fanatics talk about, fanatics are, are outsourced uh, re- retail partners. Fanatics right. talk about this uh, e-commerce model that they have. Uh, and they use, they use very successfully in the, in the US, which means that they can sort of basically just drop into a, a local market because of local market conditions. They can manufacture shirts, uh, under, under license and they can distribute them and sell them, you know, quickly and promptly in, in, in particular markets. Whether fanatics can do that, uh, for us, I, I don't know that I'm, we, we will only, we will only find out, I think, at the, at the end, end of the year. What I can say is that the, the marketing activity by the club has surpassed anything that we've done for many, many years. Um, yeah. and has, has been spectacularly good. So whilst I'm not happy to criticize the club, but I'm, I'm willing to criticize the club. Uh, I think it's only fair to say to them, you know, you've done a spectacular job in the last, in, in the last few days. The question is, in any business, generating leads is one issue. And this activity gen- generates leads in, in business parlance. It's now whether you can convert those leads into yeah. revenue. Yeah. How do you monetize that? Big deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's one thing to put um, up a billboard. It's another to, to convert those people to, yeah. You know, and you know, even, even the most successful football clubs and a lot of American listeners may be, may, may be surprised by this. I'm not actually but that, that successful in generating revenue. Manchester United, you know, I, I, I'll put out there as, well, they are the best, certainly the best in the Premier League. Um, but in terms of the number of followers that they have around the world, you know, they, they only generate slightly more than $1 per follower per year in revenue. So, you know, if, if the revenue is eight, 800, uh, what would it be? $700 million, US dollars. And they've got something like 700, well, around 700 million followers. There's an awful lot of revenue left out there, surely, that they've not yet captured. And that is the opportunity for Everton because I think there's football is by nowhere, nowhere near saturation. Uh, no global, way. Definitely. No, no, um, no way. And, and whilst, <clears throat> You know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of headwinds in terms of how the global economy is, is dealing with COVID and how that will impact a discretionary expenditure for, for, for individuals. There's so much more that football can do to generate more revenue. And that, that is the opportunity for Everton because, you know, whilst we're miles behind our competitors, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we can do that we haven't done yet. I totally agree. And, and actually, you know, you touched on some of it, the, the figure of, of, I guess, a dollar per, per fan, or I can't remember the exact figure you, you cited is actually really interesting because I, I've seen this narrative and it's, it, there's a lot of obviously holes you can poke in it, but this figure thrown around where Hamas Rodriguez has 90 million, it, whatever social media followers. If 1% of those followers buy an Everton shirt, then we're, <laughs> You know, we paid for you his love transfer this fee. One, James. This is my this is my crusade is to dispel <laughs> dispel this narrative. But you talk about that, and it and it's one thing to f- press follow on someone on social media. It's another thing entirely to spend ninety dollars on a shirt. 
It's just the, the conversion rate just isn't there. And I think you alluded to it, but I did just want to briefly touch on that because it is impressive. His reach and, and, you know, Everton will, there will be a lot of people who have never seen the Everton crest or aren't familiar with the club that will now will have a lot more eyes on us. But whether the club can effectively convert that to, to revenue is, is an entirely different and, and much more significant challenge. But and it depends on the arrangements, right? Paul, I mean, that's the big thing. I mean, like, you know, if you've, taken a much bigger flat fee up front and then kind of left, you know, all the downstream incentive scheme to, to an outsourced vendor to make all the money, you're done. You know, it doesn't really matter to you. I mean, yes, you have brand control and, and more outreach there. You can maybe monetize it in other ways, but that, that, that matters. And I mean, I totally understand the thought that the board and the people in place, I mean, if they're not, if that's not necessarily their background, they're dealing with kind of international branding and whatnot. Maybe they're not the right people to do this. So I think that's fair. I, I don't think you're being overly critical by saying that. I, I, I don't even think you say it in a way that's just like, these people are incompetent. You don't say it that way at all, but people teen, tend to react. <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm, I'm just pointing out that uh, the, the opportunity is there. Um, and then yeah. just ask, asking the question, do we have the people? Do we have the relationships? Do we have the infrastructure to generate revenue out of opportunity? And uh, I think there's a big question mark over that. Uh, if some people think I'm being negative by saying that, well, I, I apologize, but actually it's, it's the reality. And if you sat, sat in any boardroom of any, any, any company that was worth its salt, everybody would be asking the same question. Okay. There's the opportunity. Do we have the resources? Do we have the infrastructure? Do we have the product to sell to the marketplace that we know exists? Well, it's the people's club, though. I would imagine they'd be reaching out to all the people that love the club for help and assistance, right? Isn't that? Don't, no, don't come on. <laughs> I, I, I know where that's going to take us, and that will get you in more trouble, probably. So let's not go there. This has been really enjoyable. I know we've been trying to get you on for a long time. You know, I certainly appreciate your perspective. I think the last thing we wanted to ask, and this is one that James and I got a kick of, uh, we kind of like and enjoy a little bit the mystique around the esque, the harbinger of doom. <laughs> the uh <laughs> that, wet blanket. right right that i mean it's kind of absurd really i know and I, i'm having fun with it but if there's something is there something like knowing that that may be the mystique you know the cold calculating businessman telling you the harsh realities of everton what's something that they might be surprised to know about you that maybe runs counter to that mystique a little bit about you as a person um, i know you're a pretty private guy but i i just oh, well, i think yeah, it's an I, interesting I, question. I, I, I am a private guy um i'm actually <laughs> But I'm actually very different from the the persona that the esk has on mine. <laughs> um, I couldn't possibly do the job that I do if I if I was like the esk. <laughs> um, In what way, though? In what way? Because I, I get a little of that online. People think that I'm like this, just combative, like you know, angry person. And I'm, I'm I'm really not. But you know, you feel obligated sometimes to say and do things. I, I get that vibe from you. Feel obligated to do, you uh, know, to kind I, of. I, I think because in in real life, um, I engage much more with people. So I'm mm -hmm. quite, quite a sort of people's person, if that doesn't sound too much like the people's club. You know what I mean? Like relationships are, yeah. are really yeah, important yeah. to me. Um, in, yeah. in business, the relationships I have with uh, either my customers or, or with the people who provide the products that I sell on, on their behalf, et cetera, or the services that I sell, et cetera. Um, that's really important to me, I, I, but I don't show any of that on, on online. I, I, I write a load of jokes. 
people don't know about. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'd love to see uh, some of those. <laughs> I'd love to see some of those. I have this mental um, image of, of Paul. He, he takes off his suit after a long day of work and puts on his, his esque costume and he sits down on the computer <laughs> ready to, uh, to dismiss all of the, the fantasy land takes of, of Evertonians worldwide. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's obvious actually a little bit on, on business matters. Like the way Roger comes, those guys, you would not, they're clearly your friends. And it, and yeah. I think it's very obvious. You almost take a back seat to them in many ways on that particular podcast. Then, I, you wouldn't do that. I mean, if you didn't have those kind of relationships with people, I think that's obvious, but maybe some other people don't. But you future stand up comedian, you think that could be like a third <laughs> career, maybe? Well, just to give you an example, uh, when, when, when we signed Rodriguez, I thought I'd change my, um, my Twitter handle, given, given my name is Paul the Esk. Yeah. Right. Pablo, Pablo Escobar. <laughs> oh, that's so good. That is brilliant. <laughs> that is pretty, it's pretty stylish. I love that. Did anyone pick up on that? Did you do that? Or no, did no, you no. I'm, oh. I'm, I'm not going to do it neither. Oh, people would take that the wrong way. Oh, uh, yeah. Some people might take it the wrong way, but yeah. That's, oh, that's, my God. They jumped out standing for that for no reason. I think that's hysterical. That's funny. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 and I love, I lo- okay, I, lo- I love cooking. So if I didn't do what I do for a living, I, I'd have been quite happy being a cook. Oh, I forgot about that. That's yeah, right, you, man. You're always posting the dinner with yeah. the Esk and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Come down, come down That's with the Esk, stuff. which was yeah. just a bit of a joke during uh, lockdown <laughs> that we had in the, in the UK. Um, but I, 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 gen, I genuinely love it. I, um, uh, the bobblers well, love giving you, you know, joking around <laughs> with you about that. I love that exchange, by the way. That's great. I, when, when I, when I lived in London, in London, I, I would go to separate butchers, one butcher for chicken. But not the same butcher that I, if I wanted to buy pork, because I knew that pork was better than different butchers. <laughs> oh and, if I, and if I wanted to buy beef, I'd probably send somebody across the city to go to another place to get it. Wow. <laughs> Very particular. I like it. Uh, so, well, it's sort of uh, applying the same sort of analytical capabilities <laughs> that I do to. Um, like, you can't turn it off, man. To, uh, yeah, you can't turn it off. To the, sun- to the Sunday roast, you know? Yeah, I think that's great, man. That's, that's good. Great. Does the rest of the family appreciate that? Is the real question. You know, I think they do. I've got a family of Michelin Michelin uh, critics. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Oh no! So I, yeah, is that I, good or bad? Well, you know, I um, when I'm around, I I cook because I enjoy I, I enjoy cooking, and I've always enjoyed yeah. cooking for my family. Um, but there is, you know, you sit down at the table, and like, you know, son number one will prod the roast potatoes and say, mm, these aren't quite crispy enough. <laughs> what do you think? Do you prompt them at all or do they just chime in? No, no, they, just, just, like, they just go for it. You know, that. no fear. Yeah. Free for all. Like, you know, I, this is an awesome image in my head. I yeah, have my, my daughter great. often sends stuff back to the kitchen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> Not quite. No, no, we're going to have to do better than that. <laughs> oh, it's uh, good stuff, that's, man. That's even before I get to my wife. So, you know, uh, Oh boy. Yeah. Harsh, <laughs> harshest critic. I'm sure. <laughs> oh god yeah i know what that's like man no question um, so yeah and also you know i'm I'm a scouser at the end of the day um i, d- I don't sound particularly like somebody from liverpool you got um, a little bit yeah a, bit. Got a little um but you know that's proud of quite a lot of things in my life but i'm the proudest thing i am of is coming from the city of liverpool it's certainly a city of character yes um, i've really enjoyed it when, when i've been there a yeah, couple times wonderful now. city Great city. Uh, no question. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so there you go. There's a couple, a few things that uh, yeah. people don't necessarily know about me. <laughs> That's great, yeah. Paul. Really, really appreciate your time. This has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Hopefully, we can do it again sometime. It's been great. <laughs> if you'd love to be back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no question. Are you I think kidding people me? are going to really like this. We're going to have to do it in person, though. You're going to have to cook yeah. for us. There you go. There you I'll, go. I'll bring the wine. Hey, you know, we, we, people, a few people have said to me, a cooking and football sort of podcast show, whatever, uh, something on YouTube or something, which might prove problematic for me, but it would go down really well. Oh, yeah. That'd be as long awesome. as you have Are the you costume kidding? on, Paul. You wear the S costume. <laughs> You're good to go. You got the mask and everything. <laughs> oh, I love it. Fantastic. Oh, man. It, Thank you so much for coming on. No, this is, this has been great. Great pleasure. And, um, and people that have listened to this thank you so much for your time and listening to it thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast come join our discord community at invite.gg slash ATP and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at USA Toffee Pod